You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Bad rabbit, be a good rabbit and stay in your hutch. Don't listen to Sandworm. Reaper is still locked and loaded, but quiet. Maritime SATCOM system is found to be buggy, and the worst news is that it's beyond its end of life. A look back at the annual ICS Cybersecurity Summit that wrapped yesterday in Atlanta. Moscow says buying ads is a free speech issue. And who knew the Kremlin was such a nest of civil libertarians? Anonymous is back and poking at the Spanish government. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, October 27, 2017. Bad Rabbit seems for now quiet as a bunny, but it wouldn't do at all to expect that to continue. Cisco researchers found a variant of the alleged NSA Equation Group Eternal Romance tool in Bad Rabbit's code. And consensus among security researchers and other companies is that Bad Rabbit is the work of the threat actors behind NotPetya. That would be the Telebots APT, also known as Sandworm, which has in the past been associated with Russian security services, especially in operations directed against Ukraine. The damage done in Bad Rabbit's brief period of activity doesn't remotely approach that achieved by NotPetya, but of course, Bad Rabbit could well return. A majority of the targets Bad Rabbit hit were Russian, around 65%, but observers note that the high-value targets it clobbered were Ukrainian. Much reporting continues to treat Bad Rabbit as conventional criminal ransomware, but it's too early to tell, and Telebot's alleged involvement may point in a different direction. What's not dispositive in the still tenuous attribution is the high rate of attack against Russian targets. It might be ordinary crime, it might be misdirection on the backs of the little people, or it might be a mistake, which could explain why the attack infrastructure came down so quickly. The Reaper IoT botnet, also known as IOTroop, is still assembled and poised, but has yet to unleash the expected distributed denial-of-service attack. Researchers at New Sky Security, however, have observed disturbing signs in the cybercriminal underground that hackers are sharing malicious code suitable for integration with the botnet. IOActive reports vulnerabilities in Inmarsat's widely used maritime SATCOM system. Users of communication systems running the Amos Connect 8 platform could be susceptible to a blind SQL injection flaw or access to full administrative privileges. The former bug would permit an attacker to gain access to other users' credentials. The second flaw would give an attacker the ability to execute commands on the system. There is no patch for the issues, and none is planned. 
Amos Connect 8 reached its end of life, and Inmarsat's retired the platform from its product line. If you're still using it, masters and commanders, maybe it's time to upgrade. Security Week's ICS Cybersecurity Conference closed yesterday. We'll be publishing more of our own accounts of the proceedings on thecyberwire.com over the course of next week. In the meantime, a few quick reflections on the conference are in order. The operators of industrial control systems continue to believe that cybersecurity remains too IT-centric. This is natural. The cybersecurity sector emerged largely from the larger IT sector, and it brought with it concerns about privacy and information assurance. But the problem the plant operators see is that a fixation on information tends to lead to a disregard of physics, and here they mean the actual physical operation of industrial systems, and the actual physical consequences of system failure, kinetic consequences if you wish to borrow common military language. As one of the speakers put it in a bit of quick advice to the security community, please forget fail fast. There is no agile. Failure is not an option. Plant operations have to be highly available. They have to be reliable, and above all, they have to be safe. But perhaps some of the usual tropes about mutual misunderstanding between those concerned with IT and those concerned with OT are simply misguided. By yesterday afternoon, as the event wrapped up, there was an emerging consensus that the way to understand the issue is in terms of before and after, before the packet and after the packet, as industrial control system maven Joe Weiss put it at the open mic session the conference closed with. What goes on physically before the packet is where the system's ground truth is to be found, and it's there that one finds the unaddressed security and safety issues. Twitter's newfound fastidiousness about accepting Russian ads has drawn protest from the Russian government, which feels this is unfair to Sputnik and RT. It's not clear how Twitter and other social media platforms will be able to police their users' content. It's even less clear how they'll do it in an acceptably neutral way. But those unlikely free speech advocates in the Kremlin are going to be a tough crowd. Russian government spokesperson Maria Zakharvina said that because ad buys are a free speech issue, note that Twitter's not blocking RT or Sputnik, just declining to sell them ads, the Russian government will take unspecified measures. She wrote, piously, We see this as another aggressive step aimed at blocking the activities of Russian TV channel Russia Today, and it is the result of pressure from part of the American establishment and special services. And finally, in an unrelated story, Anonymous has resurfaced, attacking Spanish government sites in apparent solidarity with the Catalan independence movement. Several hackerweight of Guy Fawkes masked bravos are committing various nuisance attacks, but these don't appear to have risen to the level of a serious threat to public order or the physical integrity of the Kingdom of Spain. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps. 
keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Uh, Justin, good to have you back. You know, I still talk to people who say that uh, in response to moving things to the cloud, they say, you know, I like to have my stuff in-house. I like to be able to go and hug my servers and know that they're right here where I can see them and I know what they're up to. And I think a lot of that comes down to their ability to monitor things. And you wanted to talk today about feeling comfortable with working with the cloud. Yeah, I think that that is a great concern that is shared by uh, many global organizations. But what you'll find is a trend that more and more companies are moving to the cloud, and not just companies in general, but I never thought that I would live to see the day that more financial services institutions are moving their transactional and customer data to the cloud, given that financial services has been a lot more risk averse than other industries. And I think that's a lot of that is due to not only the cost efficiency, but when it comes down to it, uh, there has been innovations in leaps and bounds around the not only the physical security, but the online security and, and monitoring telemetry around cloud data centers through through Microsoft and Amazon. So we're seeing a lot more companies migrate to that. And the feedback I keep hearing is we don't feel, we uh, companies don't feel that we can do it as effectively as Microsoft and Amazon and the other cloud providers. So that's really one of the big values there. Um, as far as a monitoring perspective goes, there is this uh, bumper sticker and or shirt and or laptop sticker <laughs> I keep seeing that really bothers me. And the sticker reads, the cloud is just your data or your system in someone else's data center. And up to the last few years, that has been true. Uh, however, with Microsoft and Amazon making big strides in uh, platforms as a service and infrastructure as a service and the ability to to deploy whole systems, whole platforms into the cloud without even using a container-based service. Think of, um, I'm thinking of Amazon's Elastic Beanstalk and Lambda functions. There's really a huge knowledge gap there uh, for companies in thinking through how do we how do we monitor that? Both of uh, the major cloud providers have 
issued new APIs and new uh, cloud monitoring standards that while, yes, uh, you can wire your entire uh, cloud infrastructure for getting immediate feedback and telemetry, and you can load that into your log management solution, it becomes a lot more effective to essentially adopt the new cloud uh, monitoring strategies that are out there and not only store your data, your customer data, or your your business data in the cloud, but to also store your logs up there and essentially use the cloud on itself to uh, to do your threat hunting in your cloud monitoring. All right. Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. My guest today is Michael Solmeyer. He's the Belfer Center Cybersecurity Project Director at the Harvard Kennedy School. Before Harvard, he served in the Office of the Secretary of Defense as the Director for Plans and Operations for Cyber Policy. I began our conversation by asking Michael Solmeyer to describe the mission of the Belfer Center at Harvard. Several decades ago, uh, this place really became the home for thinking about new doctrine and strategic concepts at the dawn of the Cold War. The idea was that we could build something similar for cybersecurity and how states are behaving in cyberspace today. Um, There's been a lot of work in academia and in think tanks about privacy and about surveillance, which is very important work to get done, but uh, much less about how states pursue their interests through cyberspace and use cyber operations as a tool of hard power. And that's very much in line with the original founding concepts of the Belfer Center. And so that's what we're now trying to channel as we look at state behavior in this new domain of cyberspace. And why do you think that it's something that hasn't gotten the attention of some of the other areas of cybersecurity? In part, it's because this component of the field about operations and the exercise of power has been more classified and more sensitive than a lot of other areas. Hmm. And only in the last five or six years, I think, of has the government, the U.S. government, been willing to talk uh, more publicly about its activities in cyberspace. And you're also seeing uh, a number of people who've had experience with these kinds of operations and their oversight from government um, leave government and come out to academia and to centers of excellence for research and be able to write about it and be able to talk about it. That is a relatively new development. But the the idea of computer security obviously is not very new. Um, great book called The Cuckoo's Egg you know, by Clifford Stoll that came out in, I think, 1989 talks all about this kind of stuff. But what's what's more new is how uh, governments are, are finally beginning to talk about it. What's your estimation of where things stand right now? In, in terms of cyber policy, um, what's, what is the current state? It's a, it's a good question. It's a broad question. But I, I think largely um, what we see today is a reflection more of not so great defense as opposed to brilliant offense. Hmm. We face a lot of challenges, especially in the United States, but not exclusively here, but especially here about 
systematically improving our defenses, right? And that's really hard because we we were first. You know, internet was created here. So many of the the companies that now dominate the space are were created here. So in in some sense, we have some of the oldest infrastructure and are are more dependent on it. Um, that leads to real challenges when you're trying to systematically improve defenses, not just across the government, but across businesses and operators of critical infrastructure. Very hard. And how do you see the research that you do uh, and uh, making its way out into the world? It's almost easier for academics to think about researching and writing and publishing because that's so much of the game to be successful in academia. Uh, what, what often is not thought so much about is marketing. Mm. And how do you take this important piece of research that you've done and actually get it into the hands of people that could do something with it? Right. So the first step is, you know, we always try to make sure that there are actionable recommendations uh, in the papers that we write. You you can't just be admiring a problem. You have to make concrete recommendations to make a difference and improve things. And what I've found then is through different travels and meetings, especially on Capitol Hill uh, with legislative staff, uh, it's a great opportunity to share some of the work that we've done and use always a good open reception to new ideas and suggestions Hmm. uh, for legislation. And so I find that Capitol Hill is a a great place to take our products and and have conversations with staffers about what's on their mind, what can we do, what can we write about next that would be interesting uh, and policy relevant. And, and oh, by the way, here's something that we answered for a colleague of yours. What do you think? That's interesting to me because one one thing we've talked about uh, several times here on the CyberWire is how you know many of our legislators and and even looking at uh, the Supreme Court and and certainly also in the executive branch, you know just by the the uh, the virtue of these people being older, many of them are not digital natives, and so a lot of this sort of thing isn't reflexive to them. But so it's interesting to me to hear you uh, talk about um, interactions, particularly with their staff, and how receptive they are to the types of things that you're sharing. Yes, absolutely. And the staff often are are quite young. Yeah. And I think what you do see on the part of legislators uh, across the, the age range and experience range is a frustration with the current state of affairs. Hmm. Right. I mean, so they've appropriated so much money into different cybersecurity initiatives, and yet the breaches keep happening. Um, Senator McCain, I don't think, gets enough credit for being one of the most outspoken legislators about his frustrations that we're not, as a country, deterring this kind of bad behavior. Right? And why is that? So questions he's been asking at recent hearings um, are the right questions to be asking. And they're coming from one of the most experienced members in the Senate. Where do you see the United States being in terms of our leadership position? Are we still leading the way in the cyber domain? I, I do think the the very fact that the United States has been in the business for so long, uh, both of trying to protect our own infrastructure, but also um, 
understanding how to pursue U.S. national interests through uh, cyberspace as well. Uh, it still gives us a, a, a lot of capability in that space. So I'd, I'd still say that uh, we, while we may not have the, the great position of dominance that we had 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of others have, have caught up. We still have some pretty amazing reach and some pretty amazing capabilities. I think what you to be looking forward a little bit, um, one thing that we're still waiting on is how our government is going to adjudicate really who's accountable when things go wrong uh, and a cybersecurity incident happens. Hmm. There really hasn't been any accountability. And right now, when there's a breach like Equifax that we, we read about from the last couple of weeks or other things, who who gets left holding the bag but the victim? Right. Right. And at some point, government has generally come in in new areas of technology. Think the automobile, you know, other other areas. And in the name of safety or, or other reasons, fair, fundamental fairness, you know, sometimes has adjudicated really who's going to be accountable. Right. And shaped economic incentives accordingly to sometimes promote a little greater attention on safety. And I think right now we're waiting to see if the United States government and the Congress is going to uh, play that kind of a role when it comes to cybersecurity. That's Michael Solmeyer from the Belfer Center's Cybersecurity Project at the Harvard Kennedy School. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.